You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. All right, let's get started. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Björn Jeden, and I'm head at the Asia program at this institute. And uh, I would like to welcome all of you to this seminar on Japan-Russia relations, the island's dispute, and geopolitical culture with two prominent experts on both sides of this dispute. Um, I would like to mention that this seminar takes place within uh, the uh, Stockholm Seminar on Japan, which is which uh, we organize together with our friends at uh, uh, Sweden Defense University, uh, Stockholm University, and the uh, European Institute of Japanese Studies at Stockholm School of Economics. Moreover, this particular seminar, we are also very happy to collaborate uh, to make possible together with uh, the Center for Baltic and East European Studies at Södertörn University. And uh, we look forward to uh, organize uh, mini-series of seminars on uh, concepts of Eurasia from different perspectives. And, and this seminar on Japan-Russia relations is the first in that mini-series. So this seminar is actually a part of two seminar series. It might be a little complicated, but everything hangs together. I promise you. Uh, and uh, the first speaker uh, to my left is Dr. Paul Richardson. Welcome. Uh, Dr. Richardson is a lecturer at the School of uh, Geography, Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Birmingham, uh, where he also got his uh, PhD. Uh, after that, he did various stints, including at the Slavic Research Center at Hokkaido University in Japan and also the Far Eastern Federal University in Vladivostok, in, in Russia, in the same region. Um, Paul has a new book out on the University of Hawaii Press, uh, called At the Edge of the Nation, the Southern Kurils and the Search for Russia's National Identity. I encourage all of you to, to look it up, and I, I'm sure you will have a chance to have a look after the seminar uh, at this copy. Um, so very much uh, welcome to Stockholm, Paul. Uh, and then we have, we have another Paul to the left, so I think I will stick to uh, Dr. Richardson and Dr. O'Shea during this seminar, <laughs> so you understand who I'm talking to. And uh, uh, Dr. O'Shea, uh, very welcome back to, to uh, the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. You're a, a, a good old friend. Um, uh, now, uh, Paul is uh, an associate senior lecturer at the Center for East and Southeast Asian Studies uh, at Lund, uh, but you uh, had various uh, posts uh, in Scandinavia in, in the last uh, years, including a postdoc uh, at the Stockholm School of Economics here in Stockholm. Um, and uh, both uh, Dr. Richardson and Dr. Richer is going to give uh, a presentation on various aspects of this dispute, both from a Russian and from a Japanese uh, angle, and after that we will open up to a Q&A with the audience. So I would like to ask uh, Dr. Richardson to make the first presentation. Thank you. Okay, um, 
good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming out on this uh, rainy autumnal uh, afternoon in Stockholm. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you, uh, Bjorn, for your warm int introduction. It's a pleasure to be amongst uh, uh, old friends like uh, Paul uh, uh, or Shear as well, and, and new friends here. Uh, so I'm really delighted to be here, and thank you for this, this opportunity and the, the warm welcome. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm based in, uh, in uh, the geography now at, uh, at Birmingham, but I've had quite a diverse background working in Russian studies, political science, um, and, and although my focus and my, uh, you know, a lot of my research and research language is, is Russian, I've also lived and, and worked in Japan, uh, in Hokkaido, and, and also in Kanazawa, uh, in Ishikawa-ken, and, and, and I, feel, I feel I have a, an appreciation for some of the uh, Japanese angles on, on, on politics as well as this uh, uh, dispute. Uh, and I've worked with some, I hope, some of the uh, leading experts in both Japan and, and Russia uh, on this. And again, my, the book, uh, which Bjorn kindly introduced, is, is kind of tracing uh, uh, my, my research, my PhD research, uh, and beyond. And, and although my focus is on, on Russia for this, um, uh, this talk, and I think Paul will give a nice uh, counter to that, it, I think this, 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 this lens on Russia is very important for understanding uh, Japan as well. I think it gives some maybe interesting uh, nuances and, and reflections and insights uh, on Japan, and I, and I think maybe has revealed some of the, uh, I hope with this, this, this short, relatively short presentation, uh, gives also some tantalizing, maybe missed opportunities on both sides uh, to resolve uh, the, the territorial uh, issue uh, between, between Japan and Russia. And today all I want to do, I hope not too ambitious, is, is to sketch just a little of the context. I mean, we're talking of, of centuries of history here, so I'm going to uh, be skimming over a lot, but just to give a little uh, uh, flavor of the context, and just to outline uh, three moments uh, and movements, I think, that maybe uh, uh, of the relatively recent past, which I think uh, tell us much about the territorial dispute and much about Russia uh, national identity, and I think are, are essential for interpreting uh, the present. Um, so the first moment I will, I will, I will take is, is the early 1990s and this emergence uh, of a new Russia uh, and, and, and trying to overcome the Soviet past at the same time as trying to develop uh, its economy. The second is, is a, a Eurasianist turn and perhaps some of its uh, impact on, on foreign policy. Uh, and, and finally, perhaps uh, uh, events elsewhere on Russia's borderlands, uh, thinking particularly of, of events in 2014, and, and, and what maybe, if, the, if, if there's any impact on the destiny of these islands after that. I, I will, in the talk, I will use, uh, I'll tend to use the, the, the Russian names for the islands. Uh, I'll use the term the Southern Kurils, which the, Japan refers to as the Northern Territories. And again, that's not to, to privilege anyone's uh, views or, uh, or, or claims on these islands. It's just that the, the majority of my sources are in Russian, so I will, I will use the Russian names. But as I said, not, not intended to privilege uh, either, either side. So these, these islands, um, I'm sure some of you, you, you uh, know and are aware of, uh, they're, they're a, a quite rem remote and, and, and beguiling uh, place. Um, uh, they, that's, you know, it's got a, a rare picture in a way in that they're often shrouded in, in fog and in mist. A uh, few thousand residents uh, uh, cling to quite uh, tiny villages on these islands, uh, in nestled in, in isolated bays, and they're sheltered by, by, uh, from, from North Pacific storms by uh, you know, towering headlands and volcanoes, uh, active volcanoes. There's been earthquakes on the islands uh, uh, in the mid-90s. And they're, they're, they're a combination of foreboding, gloomy, and, and quite magnificent. Um, and they also they have a, a quite extraordinary history where, where empires have, have collided and met, uh, where indigenous communities have been, have been decimated and dispossessed, uh, and where states, uh, and I would argue, where, where nations, uh, states and nations have been tested and even formed. Um, so they are part of a, of a, of a chain of volcanic uh, islands uh, that stretch from uh, the, the, uh, the, the southern tip of Kamchatka uh, down to the easternmost uh, uh, point of, of Japan, of Hokkaido. Uh, there, they, uh, the four 
uh, disputed islands. You'll see all the three disputed islands and then the, the, the collection of, of islets uh, and, and rocks. The Habermas Islands, these are the four uh, disputed Southern Kuril Islands, Northern Territories. Uh, and they're made up of Itarup, Kunashir, Shikotan, and, and the Habermas Islands. And uh, both, both Russia and Japan, again, I'm going to not really talk too at length about the history. They, they, um, uh, you know, Russia and Japan currently claim uh, these islands. They're administered by Russia, claimed by Japan. Uh, these claims, of course, ignore the indigenous uh, Ainu people who were, uh, who were the, uh, there long before uh, Russia and Japan uh, was on the scene. Um, the, the Treaty of Shimoda, that was when the, uh, uh, the, the, the treaty that formalized relations between Japan and, uh, between the, you know, Japan and the Russian Empire. That was signed in 1855, um, uh, and this was agreed, this official border uh, between East Europe and, and Europe. Um, in 1875, uh, we go up to, up to Kamchatka now, the Treaty of St. Petersburg. Uh, that determined that Japan would, uh, would, would give up its rights to, uh, to Sakhalin, uh, which is marked there on the top map. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and we give them up to Russia, and, and Japan would, uh, would claim all of the, the Kuril Islands from, from Hokkaido all the way to uh, Kamchatka. And, uh, and by, by, the, uh, uh, by this point, by the, uh, the late 19th century, by 1884, all of the, uh, the, the Ainu were, were removed from the islands and, and, and uh, attempted to be assimilated in, into Hokkaido, uh, often but, uh, moved elsewhere in Japan. And there was no longer any really uh, you know, indigenous uh, people left uh, by around the late, late 19th century. Um, the, the Treaty of Portsmouth is, is, is not marked on the, uh, the map. That, was the, uh, that ended the, uh, formally ended the Russo-Japanese War, uh, 1905, 1905. And this treaty, it left the status of the, the islands unchanged. There was no uh, uh, shift in the border there, although there was a shift in, in, in Sakhalin and the, 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 uh, the, southern most port, the southern half of, of Sakhalin uh, that was ceded to Japan um, in 1905. But all of the, the islands, all of these coral islands, until the last days uh, of the Second World War, 1945, at the end, where, where currently uh, the border is, uh, you know, they remained at Japan until then. Um, just, just very briefly, in, in, in 1941, the Soviet Union and Japan signed uh, a neutrality pact on, on April the 1st, uh, just before the, the Nazi invasion of, of Germany. It was stipulated to last for five years uh, and, and declared their mutual respect uh, towards each other's territory, uh, integrity, and, and viability. And this, this neutrality pact, it survived the, uh, um, uh, Japan entering the war uh, against... Um, uh, against uh, it survived Japan's uh, uh, attack on Pearl Harbor, Americans' entrance into the war. The, the neutrality pact uh, held out uh, with that, even though the Soviet Union and the United States were fighting on the, the same side. And incidentally, the, the fleet for, that attacked um, Pearl Harbor, it assembled... Uh, in the southern Kurils, even an indication of how isolated they are uh, and how distant they were. The fleet assembled there and then uh, went on to attack Pearl Harbor. In, uh, it was on uh, August the 8th, 1945, uh, that the, uh, the neutrality pact was annulled by the Soviet Union and it joined the Pacific Theater at this moment on the side of the Allies. Uh, the Red Army very quickly occupied Sakhalin and uh, on also the, the entire Kuril chain. Uh, under the, 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 the Yalta uh, uh, proceedings of the Yalta Conference, um, the, the Allies, uh, which of course Japan wasn't part to in February 1945, uh, they, 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 in, in the proceedings of the Yalta Conference, it was agreed that the Kuril Islands would be, uh, shall be handed to the Soviet Union. There were some fierce clashes, just, just to note, on the northernmost islands, uh, particularly Shumshu, uh, right at the top there, there were some quite fierce uh, cl clashes and casualties. 
uh, on the northernmost uh, islands. And a lot of the uh, Japanese islanders before uh, the, uh, the, the Soviet advance, they fled uh, to the mainland, uh, uh, though, you know, quite a few remained and then were initially used, interred, or, or continued to work in some of the fish processing uh, industries there and were used by the new uh, Soviet administration. However, by 1948, all of the Japanese, uh, uh, the vast majority, pretty much all of them, of about the 17,000 who were left, they'd all uh, been deported uh, at this point. And, and most of the new Soviet population were either demobilized uh, uh, soldiers or they were uh, uh, fishermen and their dependents and families who were induced, encouraged, either for incentives or, 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 or pushed, uh, obliged to start new lives in the, uh, uh, in the Far East on these islands. Um, I'll, I'll skip to, to 1951. Again, this is very, very, very uh, quick history. Uh, the San Francisco Peace Treaty was signed in 1951, confirming the end of the Second World War. Article, uh, chapter 2, Article 2C of the treaty says that uh, Japan, in this treaty, renounced all rights, title, and claim to the Kuril Islands. However, the Soviet Union never signed this document for a variety of reasons. The territorial uh, uh, issue not been perhaps the main one, but it didn't sign the, uh, the San Francisco region. There was other, other, regions, uh, other reasons at stake there. And, you know, without this uh, signature, there was no peace treaty between Moscow uh, and Tokyo. And that remains outstanding uh, till, until today. Negotiations on a peace treaty, though it was, you know, there was a recognition this wasn't, uh, uh, there should be a peace treaty. They began in, in uh, 1955, attempting to break this deadlock. And the, the, the Soviet delegation raised this idea of, of transferring uh, Shikotan and the Habamai Islands, uh, the, the smaller uh, islands, uh, 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 of a transfer to Japan. And that was kind of quite key in the, in the language, that it was a transfer, not a return. Um, and on, uh, after these negotiations on the... Uh, 19th of October 1956, uh, the Soviet Union and Japan signed the joint declaration that, that ended a state of war between the two countries, re-established uh, diplomatic relations, renounced any claims for repatriation, uh, accepted Japan as a UN member, uh, and agreed that following the signing of a peace treaty, um, uh, the Soviet Union would transfer Shikotan and the Habamai to uh, Japan. However, this, this process stalled. Uh, the peace treaty was, was never signed uh, after in, in 1960. The U.S.-Japan Security Treaty was renewed. Uh, the Soviet Union um, uh, responded to this renewal of the security uh, uh, treaty uh, by uh, issuing a memorandum to Japan uh, that, the, uh, that the transfer of Habamai and uh, Shikotan would, only, would now be conditional on a withdrawal of all foreign, uh, which is i.e. Uh, U.S. troops, uh, uh, from Japanese territory. And in reply, Japan, Japan objected to this. Uh, this uh, said that the joint declaration, as it was ratified by the Japanese parliament, uh, and by the uh, Supreme Soviet, that it would not, uh, you, 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 it could not be changed uh, unilaterally. And so you ended up with these different interpretations of, of the uh, 1956 agreement. And since then, now we're sort of getting to the, the three moments that I want to explore for the, the rest of the talk. Um, since 1960, uh, certainly in the Soviet period, uh, until uh, at least until uh, Gorbachev, late Gorbachev period, uh, this period, you know, the, the dispute was, was characterized by both sides uh, quite tirelessly asserting their rights to the Southern Kurils, uh, uh, asserting their rights going to geography, geology, prior discovery, who developed the islands, uh, different treaties, different international laws, different interpretations of these. Um, and, 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 you know, that was, that was sort of what defined the era really until uh, there was more of a debate on these issues in the, in the late, uh, very late Soviet uh, period. And, and I think, you know, the, you know in, the, in the late, so in the, in the, after the, the, the Soviet period, uh, the 1956 agreement, uh, it, it resurfaced, it's resurfaced from time to time, and we'll, I'll explore that uh, in a moment, and hence why I spend a bit of time 
explaining that. And I think this, this negotiation of, of, of 1956, as well as other things, I think it's really revealed a lot about the struggle for competing uh, visions of Russia's relationship, the new Russia's relationship between territory, sovereignty, and, and, and identity. And this, 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 this new relationship, defining this relationship, it was really a feature from the very beginning of the, uh, of the, new, of the new Russia. Uh, the Russian Federation came into being on the, the 25th of December, 1991, and it was immediately followed uh, by a, a quite expansive and immediate gesture from the, uh, from the new government. Just two days later, on the 27th of, of December, 1991, Russia's foreign minister at the time, Andrei Kozirev, uh, he stated to the Japanese ambassador in Moscow, uh, Edamura, that the Russian government it recognizes the legality of the 1956 Japanese-Soviet joint uh, declaration, including this idea of, of transferring the uh, Habermai and, and Shikotan uh, there. And I think this partly it signaled the, the urgency of the Russian state's desire to reformat relations uh, uh, and, and gain, you know, at the same time, gain substantial uh, investment to Japan. And it also, I think, you know, exhibited a desire to reject certain legacies of the, uh, of the Soviet uh, past to immediately reformat this relationship. And Kozirev's uh, uh, overture on the 27th was then again followed on the 29th uh, by a television interview when he, when he uh, criticized uh, the Soviet uh, rejection of the 1956 declaration in 1960. Uh, and he even defended uh, Japan's uh, position as a, as a justifiable countermeasure to, to Soviet expansionism. So you see quite an extraordinary uh, change and immediate change in rhetoric. Uh, in these first months of the Russian Federation, and again, my focus is on, on the new Russia and the identity debate, some of these debates do draw on, on, on a period, uh, the last year or two of Gorbachev's uh, uh, presidency of the Soviet Union, which I don't have time to, to discuss. But this, these first few months of the Russian Federation, the legal and, and moral values of this new state became, became I think, quite you know, bound to the uh, destiny of these islands, the future of the Southern Kurils. Uh, for example, and there's a, you know, the, the book uh, uh, you know, gives, gives part of the case for this, uh, more examples of this. Uh, that on the uh, eve of Yeltsin's uh, visit to Japan, which was then cancelled, um, uh, uh, one of his presidential advisors, Galina Starovaitova, uh, uh, declared that the, on the island's ownership that justice and, uh, should triumph, morality should be brought back into politics, and there was a, a, a similar theme within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, or at least parts of it, uh, making these claims. Uh, Konstantin Sarkisov, who was an uh, advisor to, to Gorbachev, and, uh, and, uh, and then a leader of Japanese studies at the Institute of, of, of Oriental Studies at the Academy of Sciences. He talked about that the Russian people must know the, the facts about these islands, uh, and to quote him, the vital national interests of Russia and the moral health of the nation demands it. So you know, linking territory with, with, uh, uh, you know, with much, much more. And it, it seemed, at least in those first few months of, 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 of the Yeltsin presidency and the new Russia, that this, this moral health uh, was about to be restored. Uh, Russia's uh, uh, state secretary, uh, Bergulis, he, he'd recommended to the president uh, that on his scheduled visit to Japan that summer in, in 1992, he should accept on this visit the 1956 uh, declaration um, and, and go even beyond that and then start negotiations on Kunashir and, and, and Itarab, um, you know, talking about their eventual uh, reversion to, to Japan and, and went even further than that, that uh, what Kozirev uh, was talking about. And again, he justified this by making this claim, again, that Russia has no right to be called a lawful and democratic state without, without doing this. And as, as I suggest, I think in these framings, this, this, this transfer, this, this return of the islands, it became symbolic of a, of a new, rational, lawful, just, 
uh, liberal, and in, and in their words, uh, uh, civilized uh, Russia, some of the people engaged in this debate. Um, and, and it was a decisive step towards overcoming the, 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 the Soviet past, the Stalinist past, uh, and, the, and those policies in the Russian Far East. Uh, and it would help communicate Russia's new identity beyond, beyond this issue and, and, and further. And uh, Georgi uh, Kurnadze, who was deputy foreign minister uh, in Russia between 91 and 93, uh, he was one of the main architects of, of, this, of, of, of the foreign uh, affairs, you'd argued, uh, even before, the, uh, uh, before 1991, uh, you know, for, for uh, certainly recognizing 1956 and even going beyond that. Uh, he spoke of, uh, in favor of a settlement, but he also recognized that, that they became uh, easy targets of, of accusations of selling out to Japan. There was a number of coalitions forming in Russia. And as, in, as Kunadze put it, uh, public opinion, it, it exploded with all kinds of extremist views, which he, he thinks were not accurate or fair. And as he, as he recognized, the majority of people, the majority of, of, of politicians, increasingly, they voiced any opposition uh, to any settlement. And again, my, uh, the focus of another chapter in my book is about that, uh, that, that reaction uh, uh, to this and a very different, a very different view of Russia uh, that emerged. Uh, and, and given this, this opposition, it's perhaps uh, uh, not surprising that uh, it was only in, in December 2012 that Kunadze, who was an expert on Japan, fluent in Japan, uh, he admitted to a, a Japanese newspaper, Hokkaido Shimbun, in, in March, that, that in March 1992, so almost 20 years later, that while he was, he was a deputy foreign minister, he had, he had put forward uh, and secretly put forward to the Japanese side uh, a proposal based on the 1956 uh, declaration and, and negotiations would be left open on, on Iturup and, and, and Kunishir. However, they, as I said, they found themselves facing a, a, a nation, national patriotic uh, backlash about this idea of, of conceding territory from nationalists, uh, from former communists, and also, um, you know, to, their, to their dismay, also from liberal reformers, from, from Democrats, also kind of react, rejecting uh, uh, these claims and using very different arguments and very different rationale uh, for, uh, to make that connection between territory, uh, identity, and, and geopolitics. Uh, and the, the, the result of this increasing uh, 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 movement, which was across the board, there was many issues in Europe. This is, you know, there's a, there's a whole... Uh, 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 set of other uh, international affairs going on at the same time. Uh, but the result of these state elites who were engaging and advocating uh, uh, this idea of a territorial compromise with Japan, they were gradually uh, dispersed uh, from their positions of power uh, by the Yeltsin, uh, by the embattled, the embattled Yeltsin leadership. Uh, Yeltsin suffered a, a quite a dramatic loss of, of political capital over this issue. He cancelled his visit, um, you know, fearful of of, of, of uh, you know, reaction at home, perhaps even deposing him. Um, and he, he thought he couldn't, couldn't win anything from this, this, this journey for Japan, and he couldn't make any concessions when he was there. He did make it to Japan in 1993 uh, when he signed the Tokyo Declaration, which, which recognized the importance of concluding a peace treaty, and it recognized that there was a, a problem of ownership over all four islands. He, he mentioned Itarup Kunashu, Shikutan Habamai, so admitted that there was... Uh, 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 there needed to be a solution to this problem, uh, but no, no concrete proposals emerged from this uh, other than that um, they, they were recognized as disputed, and the declaration also stated that all agreements and other international deals between the Soviet Union and Japan continue to be applied uh, between the Russian Federation and Japan. So that would include, if all agreements and international deals, that would include uh, the, the 1956. It recognized the validity of 1956 declaration, but also acknowledged at least that the dispute extends to, to four islands. And, and this, this kind of tension between the four islands and the two islands, it highlights much of the debate and negotiations between Russia and Japan over the southern, southern Kuril Islands. 
and much of this debate has been on whether, it is, whether it's two or, or four uh, and whether either of these could ever take place. Uh, and just in one of the interviews for my uh, research with, a, with a, a quite staunch national patriot, uh, a former deputy minister in, in Yeltsin's government, he expressed his relief that, that Japan insisted on the four islands. Uh, he said that, thank God, it is good that Japanese want four, all four. If they said give us two, according to the 1956 declaration, then maybe we could come to meet them. I'm very glad that they asked for four. It's, it's hopeless. Uh, Yeltsin himself seemed to have a genuine uncertainty about how to resolve the issue. Uh, and in office, he talked of, uh, of leaving the responsibility for the next generation, certainly in his, his second presidential term. He wanted to defer this beyond, beyond his presidency. Uh, it becomes a future problem. And in his memoirs, he said I, he was thinking all the time whether to give the islands to Japan or not. And I think that also reflects some of the intensity of the debate, trying to persuade him on, on this issue. Um, and again, re reflecting, again, in one of the interviews with, uh, with, with one of the, uh, the, the people at the heart of these debates in the early 1990s, um, uh, uh, who was involved in the negotiations, said that, that they could speak uh, for the Russian government of those days, that Russia was prepared to proceed, but the whole plan, according to uh, 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 this uh, uh, account, is that it, it collapsed due to Japanese uh, blunders. They hoped that if they pressed harder, they may extract some other things from Russia, so they kept asking for a little extra. And finally, President Yeltsin, who was a very kind personality, uh, but at very time short tender, he just exploded. So that's kind of his, his account of, the, uh, of those days. And with this volatility of Yeltsin's temperament, the intensity of this growing uh, opposition to the territorial concession of, of, of a weakened Russia, the, the chances of a peace treaty and territorial concession evaporated uh, over time. Uh, and by the mid-1990s, by, by certainly Yeltsin's, uh, the end of his first term, start of his second term, the, the key you know, advocates of a territorial concession, they, they were gone from high office, and Yeltsin never again possessed either the momentum or the authority uh, to persuade the country of a transfer of the, of the islands to Japan. And then, so I will take sort of another moment. So that was the first moment, uh, and then sort of the last, the last part will we'll, we'll take another two short uh, moments when uh, there was perhaps, uh, you know, key moments, I think, in this, this debate that have a, a, a resonance to today. And, and it's quite intriguing that the, the, the second moment comes in the, the president of, presidency of, of, of Vladimir Putin. Um, and it was him who returned to the idea of a territorial concession. Um, and I think just, just very briefly, it's worth maybe dwelling on some of the reasons and and rationales behind this, and, and perhaps how the Southern Kurils, you know, amongst other things, fitted into a Eurasian turn in, in, in post-Soviet uh, Russian politics. And, and perhaps the most renowned uh, exponent of, of modern-day Eurasianism uh, is, is, is Alexander Dugin, who I won't uh, focus on for too long. He's a very visible, uh, charismatic, idiosyncratic uh, figure, um, uh, leader of the international Eurasian movement, and head of conservative studies at Moscow State University. Um, and again, I, uh, you know, I don't overemphasize his influence. It's perhaps, uh, it, it, it perhaps is, is very little, but it, it's indicative. It's a symbol of this sort of a, sort of a, of a Eurasian term. Not all of his ideas, but certainly some of his, his geo geopolitical ideas. Uh, and there is, there is Dugin uh, uh, discussing uh, uh, when, I, when I interviewed him, uh, talking about what the, uh, uh, the Kurils could give. Normally, he's kind of a territorial uh, nationalist. You'd need to, you know, he... He, he went extremely, uh, was inciting violence uh, in 2014. Uh, was very strong, uh, assertive that Russia uh, had, had rights to uh, uh, parts of, uh, of Ukraine. I was very strongly advocated this. But on the, on the Southern Kuril issues, he has a very different uh, framing of this. Um, uh, you know, to, you know, Dugin's idea is, is that uh, Russia's destiny, its future, is to be 
uh, the guarantor of, of, of distinct civilizational values uh, across Eurasia's uh, continental spate. And in this, in this, um, this struggle, uh, Dugin has promoted uh, building an axis to resist what, what he calls Atlanticist influences. I mean, this Atlanticist, it really refers to, to U.S. influence, globalization, <laughs> and that Russia should, should protect the communities, the peoples, the, uh, the nations of, of Eurasia against these, these globalist Atlanticist uh, influences. And it's within this meta-narrative, which, again, there's a lot, uh, people in this room have written extensively on this uh, uh, issue. I'm not going to, there's books on, on, on Dugan's Eurasianism, its complexities. Um, but, but as part of this geopolitical meta-narrative on, on space, the Southern Kurils for Dugin um, assumed quite a, a critical significance. And for Dugin, they came to, to represent a unique opportunity for Japan to be released from its uh, American domination. And at the same time, it would also, for, for Russia, it would help it develop its, its Far East and, and resist what, what Dugin saw as, as Chinese expansionism into Siberia and the Russian Far East. Again, Dugin is not alone in this. I use him as a, as a symbol, you know, the kind of a, a figurehead uh, of, 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 you know, it's not just his ideas, he's not advocating this. He has a certain Eurasianist uh, spin uh, on this, a slightly different way of framing it. But these are not, it's not just Dugin advocating this. This Eurasian turn had a much, you know, people, even people like Primakov uh, and others, there was, you know, a recognition that's slightly different. But, but, but on, on the islands, uh, Dugin has, has come to some very specific uh, policies on the, on the southern Kurils. And, and for Dugin, he, he's argued and uh, said that Russia is inter interested in an exchange of these islands, not because it's, it's correct to return them, uh, although it will, it will kind of you know, bring, bring Russia back to, to the civilized world or anything like this. Uh, he, he has he admitted it will help modernize the Russian econ economy, but also act as a countermeasure uh, uh, to China. And again, in, the, in, in his interview as an aside, he stated that his Eurasian solution for, for China was to head south in the direction of Australia to the Pacific Ocean, and as Dugan put it, it's not our problem what the local population will think. And I think that's very telling of his grand geopolitical neo-imperial uh, prisms with which he views, views the world. Uh, and again, as I, as, I, as I concede, it's difficult to quantify the impact of, of Dugin on, on, on current policymaking. But, but Dmitry uh, Trenin, uh, the uh, much more liberal-minded uh, policy expert at the Carnegie Center in Moscow, in the early 2000s, he, he said that he described Dugin as a, as a very well-read and prolific crackpot. But he's also one with a lot of influence in, in Trenin's eyes. Or at least his ideas have, have some. I would certainly concede that. I think it, what is intriguing for me in this talk is that Dugin and Putin have arrived at proposals that place an instrumental value on, on, on territory and the possibility of an exchange of the Southern Kurils in a return for Japan's enhanced uh, geopolitical status. And, 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 and again, in the book, uh, I talk about uh, Putin's approach to this, uh, which has some features, maybe, of, of Dugin. I call it a kind of form of pragmatic uh, patriotism. Uh, and this has allowed uh, you know, the Russia's second president at one moment to, to emphasize uh, Russia's legal obligations to, to the 1956 declaration in particular and that possibility of a territorial concession. But at another moment, uh, another patri much more patriotic narrative has allowed him to quickly revert to stressing the importance of, of territorial integrity and to the results of the Second World War, the immutable results of the Second World War. And in the first months of, of Putin's presidency, uh, Putin and his Japanese counterpart at the time, uh, Yoshiro Mori. They met in Japan in September 2000, uh, the same year, or just less than a year after Putin uh, took, took office. Their official uh, remarks said that both, both sides agreed to, to continue nego negotiations by drawing on all the progress uh, achieved through agreements so far and to work out a peace treaty by addressing the issue of the, the ownership of the islands of Iturup, Konashe, Shikotan, and Habamai. So almost a 
restating uh, Yeltsin's 1993 uh, 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 declaration. Uh, in spring of the, of the following year, Putin met in, in, in 2001. With, with, uh, uh, he met with Mori again, this time in Irkutsk. And they, they talked there about their prep preparedness uh, in the case of Putin's uh, second election for a second presidential term uh, in 2004 to lead negotiations with Japan on the exchange of these two islands, uh, Shikotan and, and Habermine. And Putin proved good to be his word on this. Uh, and just months after his landslide uh, re-election, uh, Russia's foreign minister to this day, uh, Sergei Lavrov, uh, he made a you know, quite a remarkable announcement on, on national TV, and on uh, November the 14th, 2004, he stated that Russia was willing to accept the principles of the 1956 Joint Declaration, uh, which would include this transfer as, as stipulated in the agreement. Uh, and again, this, this was not new to, to Japanese and, and Russian negotiators on the issue, but it represented uh, the first time that it had been proposed on, 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 on nationwide television and directed to a, a, a much larger mass audience. Putin praised Lavrov's uh, interview, uh, and he was reported as saying that Russia will, after the interview, that Russia have always fulfilled and will fulfill all obligations taken upon ourselves, especially uh, ratified documents. Uh, there's the, uh, uh, I think that's, uh, that's Putin's, uh, yeah, Putin's response to, to Lavrov's speech. That's not the actual, I don't think that's the actual speech. Lavrov was much younger uh, in those days. Um, uh, but then the, the, he also uh, uh, clarified that as this uh, continuator state, uh, they recognized the declaration uh, as existing. But in order for its implementation, it's necessary that the two sides uh, uh, continue to talk uh, and about the fact that something will definitely take place, nothing, uh, nobody has ever said so. And this strategy, I think, it allowed the Russian president to gauge the mood uh, and pull back if there was a surge of, of, of populist nationalist opposition. And it's just worth at this moment noting that this happened just uh, you know, a few weeks after there was an agreement with China to split uh, uh, two islands in the Amur River, uh, uh, Tarabarov and uh, uh, Bolshevik Usuriski, there was an agreement to split them 50-50, uh, and Russia would transfer 50% uh, uh, of them to, to China and resolve their, their, their long-standing long uh, territorial disputes. And, and this, this, um, this, 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 this overture to, to Japan, it, was, uh, uh, it may have been pragmatic, but it was also perhaps at the, certainly mistimed and, 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 and perhaps also uh, misjudged that Russia, it placed some hopes on the, uh, the continued influence in the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, 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 of Muneo Suzuki, who was on uh, Hokkaido. Um, he, he, he was quite influential, talking about a, a two, two plus two, the islands, and then further discussion uh, on others. There was also the idea that uh, Russia's... Um, uh, Russia emerging as an energy superpower, and this would be very attractive uh, for Japan, which is trying to diversify uh, its, its energy supplies and looking to, to, to uh, win a pipeline route that would go to the Sea of, uh, sea of Japan. So to, 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 to cut the, uh, a bit of a, a long story a little shorter, it was rejected by uh, Japan. Um, uh, Suzuki, uh, who was an advocate of this, uh, and also uh, 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 Dugin claimed to have contacts with Suzuki, and that Suzuki uh, uh, you know, sort of agreed with a lot of what Dugin uh, was thinking about uh, at, the, uh, at the top level. Uh, this was rejected. Prime Minister Koizumi uh, never gave any indication that this was anything he was, he was prepared to agree to. And Hosoda, the uh, cabinet se secretary, quickly uh, dismissed uh, this initiative. Um, and, and, and Lavrov uh, uh, also uh, uh, retreated to um, uh, uh, saying that the, the status of the Japan uh, is secured in international law. But this time, that international law referred to uh, is a result of, of the Second World War. 
uh, not the 1956 agreement, and that was the, the final uh, uh, demarcation. Um, so I will just, I'll just sort of skip uh, a little bit in the interest of time and giving, giving Paul um, a, a chance to, to reply, but uh, just maybe the last uh, few words before just wrapping it up is that there was, a, 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 again, a renewed enthusiasm in around 2012 when Putin came back uh, to the presidency um, uh, with the uh, Asia-Pacific uh, uh, Economic Cooperation Summit, which was held in Vladivostok in 2012. There was a, uh, uh, this idea of Russia pivoting towards uh, uh, the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, Putin came, came uh, back for his, his uh, uh, second, uh, after the Medvedev uh, interlude, uh, Putin came back. Um, and there was a you know, flurry of activity about, uh, uh, with, with Abe, uh, agreements for, for, for gas projects, other investment opportunities, and, and a recognition by both, both partners that it was abnormal that there was still no uh, uh, peace treaty between the, the two sides. And it's quite significant. It's worth just uh, very quickly uh, noting uh, there's, there's Putin referring back again to this, the Second World War suddenly becoming part of this kind of fluctuation from the pragmatic to the patriotic. Uh, Medvedev was also, he was a surprising national patriot on this issue, visiting the islands, uh, he visited them twice, once as president, and again, this is his, uh, that gives you an indication of his take uh, on the islands, and, and on, on this issue, uh, Putin emerges in some way as, 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 as the good cop. Of course, relations changed uh, quite dramatically by 2014, uh, Japan uh, uh, agreed also to, uh, uh, agreed with, with, with some limited sanctions uh, against Russia, um, uh, with, with uh, the, uh, uh, the, there was a, quite a chill in relations that a lot of these dynamics at 2012 and afterwards with, with Abe even visiting Sochi when, it, when all the Western leaders uh, boycotted it. Um, there was, a, there was a, 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 a reaction to this and, and after, after Crimea and the annexation, uh, Japan's Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Fumio Kishida, uh, when he was in Brussels, he said that he declared in 2015 that what's happening in Ukraine, it's changing the status quo by means of force. The problem of the Northern Territories was also a change of the situation by means of, of, of force. I, again, this had a very predictable uh, reaction uh, in, in Russia with Lavrov again uh, uh, you know, uh, going back to the UN Charter and saying uh, that, that it's only Japan that doesn't recognize uh, uh, this, that the, the results of the victorious powers of the Second World War are in, in Lavrov's words, sacrosanct and inviolable. So we see this kind of this tension uh, uh, compared to what we outlined uh, uh, earlier. There was, uh, there was a number of visits to the islands as well. Uh, you know, new infrastructure was built there. The defense industry still and has intensified even this summer, uh, uh, deploying weapons uh, on these islands. So to, 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 to wrap up, and sorry for going through a little, if there are any questions uh, about this more recent period we can uh, discuss in the Q&A. Um, but I would say that, you know, this, this, this demonstrated, and again, Medvedev's uh, visit there, it demonstrated in a way uh, to Japan that, that uh, any alternative to Putin's solution uh, on the island's destinies could be far worse. And I think the question is, 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 is can this, this pragmatic patriotism uh, endure post-Crimea, uh, post-2014? Um, and I would say in terms of a, of a peace treaty, uh, that seems, it seems out of the, the reach for the moment. But that doesn't mean that there won't be a peace and, and good relations with Japan. And I think these will uh, endure. Uh, both countries have lived for, for 70 years without a peace treaty. Trade, uh, it has fluctuated. The last two years have been quite positive, about 25% last year, probably uh, similar for this year. There's been certain uh, investment initiatives. Um, and in terms of geopolitics, uh, I think Japan uh, feels a certain isolation in, in Asia. Nationalism, uh, uh, you know, in Japan, but nationalism in Korea and in China, in both Koreas. It continues to limit some of the uh, relations that Jan Japan can have with its neighbors. Uh, and Russia is a partner in which ties can be 
expanded. I think that's Abe's uh, rationale. And there's also the isolation with, with the United States, that although Abe is renowned for his, his rounds of golf with President Trump, they don't seem to discuss what's happening in North Korea, and, and Japan was completely isolated from these uh, discussions. And, and on the Russia side, despite uh, you know, the, we, you know, the, the, the relationship, this very strong every you know, strengthening relationship with China, burgeoning trade, maybe, maybe uh, hitting around 100 billion, there remain unsaid concerns, and these are unsaid. They're, not, uh, they're certainly not uh, in, in the mainstream media, but in Russia there are, there are concerns about the equality of this relationship, the future dependence of Russia on, on China, particularly its Far Eastern uh, territories, a fear of becoming a resource appendage to China, and either way, whether Japan's, uh, sorry, whether Russia's relations with, with China strengthen or falter, Japan is a very useful uh, partner. Uh, having said all that, I don't, this peace treaty uh, signing does not seem to be on, uh, uh, on the horizon. What was once about a lot of post-war issues in 1951 is now exclusively about the destiny of these islands. The chances of a compromise uh, on these islands has, has, I think, perhaps become somewhat more distant after 2014 and an activation of, uh, of, uh, of territory and identity. Um, nevertheless, having said that, to, to, to caveat that, we have seen that this possibility of a concession, it has been repeatedly uh, raised throughout, throughout Putin's presidential terms, and I think is often forgotten in kind of these, these exclusively revanchist uh, accounts of, 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 of Russia. Um, uh, that, that, that this has not gone away, and, uh, and it's been repeatedly raised through Putin's presidential terms. And the state certainly retains enough control over politics and the media where it, it is possible that this could happen as it did with China in 2004, and as it did with, with uh, uh, the conclusion of an agreement with Norway over maritime uh, areas, even with this painful concession of territory. So, you know, to, to what extent would uh, an agreement uh, generate concerns beyond nationalist patriotic communities in, in Russia? I think that remains a, a, a risky question for Russia. Could ethno-nationalists, uh, such as, as, as Navalny, uh, activate and popularize this issue? to undermine the current regime? Well, it's, a, it's a question mark. But certainly in the, in the, in the, uh, the populist nationalist times that we all live in, uh, the connections between territory and identity and, and sovereignty have become as salient as ever. And I would say today, you know, in conclusion, uh, just as in those, those first few days of the Russian Federation, the destiny of these islands is also very much the destiny of, of Russia. And I'll leave it there. So thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Richardson. And then we will look forward to the second presentation by Dr. Paul O'Shea. Okay, um, thank you. I really enjoyed your presentation. Um, I'm not here with a book. I'm not quite the same, don't have exactly the same level of expertise as Paul does uh, in terms of the dispute, although I've done research on it, and I think I'm at least I'm qualified to say something about the Japanese position, um, which is quite inflexible. Um, the reason I chose this image here uh, is because I think this is a sign calling for the, the return of the, the islands. And I think the state of the sign kind of symbolizes the sadness of Japan's claim. Um, it's neglected. It's becoming forgotten. Um, it's, it's a little bit sad, really. Um, 
Things have changed so much in East Asia since the 1956 declaration, since the 1945 occupation, since the 1993 Tokyo declaration. Um, but Japan's claim remains firm. It remains the same. Uh, Japan has put forward all sorts of different proposals in the last 20 years, but all of the proposals are essentially the same thing, and that is return of all four islands and the sovereignty over all four islands. Uh, and to, from the outside, this insistence on four islands and this static claim, um, this inflexibility, can seem a bit perplexing when it seems, as we've heard, that it's extremely unlikely that Russia will agree. So I'm going to try and just tease out some of the reasons for, or trying to explain and understand why Japan maintains this apparently ectotic uh, claim. So we heard already, um, thankfully I don't need to go through all the, thank you for, for covering most of the, the sort of long complicated history of uh, treaties and summits and so on. Uh, what, what's important in terms of the moral framing of the issue from the Japanese perspective is that before, uh, the, so the signing of the Treaty of Shimoda, since then, uh, until 1945, the islands were always Japanese territory. So they were never Russian territory bef before, right? So they were, they seized, stole, invaded, and occupied, annexed, like inherent Japanese territory. That's the story, and that's the story today. Um, obviously, we heard that, you know, the Ainu don't really feature much in these stories, but they were living there before, they were killed, they were forcibly moved, uh, and they died from disease. Um, so we also, we've heard the joint declaration, the inability to sign the peace treaty. I can skip over some of that. Uh, and just talk about Japan's image of the Soviet Union and image of Russia. So, basically, the 1945 seizure of the islands uh, is seen in simple black and white moral terms. Um, so the Soviet Union broke the non-aggression pact, as we heard. Uh, it took advantage of Japan at its darkest hour, in its, in its worst moment. It took advantage after Japan had already surrendered. So Japan had signed the instrument of surrender, and the Russian or the Soviets continued to move down the peninsula. So it wasn't until September 1945, two or three weeks after the actual surrender, that they had finished taking these islands. This is the Japanese view. Um, the result of this is that Russia and the Soviet Union before it, as we can see from the graph here, uh, they have these fantastic polls. The Japanese government conducts these polls on uh, attitudes of the civilians to other countries. Until recently, the Soviet Union, every year after year, was the least liked country in Japan. North Korea has taken over, uh, but until recently, uh, it was Soviet Union and then Russia. And you see there, the do not feel affinity. It's a very soft sounding way of putting it. The only time there's a little blip is just after the, the end of the Cold War. But basically it goes back to the same levels. And actually it's, even though Sino-Japanese relations have taken a hit in the last few years, uh, Japanese people feel more affinity even to China than they do to Russia. So again, as I say, the dispute has been framed in these absolute moral terms. Um, and therefore, there can be no compromise. Uh, so as early as 1981, uh, on the anniversary of the, the Treaty of Shimoda, Japan inaugurated this 
Northern Territories Day. So I'll be using the term Northern Territories, uh, I should say just generally because again in the literature I focus more on Japan and that's the term, Hoporiolo. Um, it means the Southern Creoles, it's the same, same place. Uh, so they started this, this day to celebrate and to remember and to raise awareness. Uh, it was turned into a cabinet brief, so it's part of one of the, the ministers also who looks after the issue. Um, the former residents of the island who moved, they've been also very active in keeping it, it going. It's all in, in the history textbooks. Um, it led to, I should probably press this button, not yet, an absolute moral framing and a policy of seke fukabum, which meant the indivisibility of politics and economics. So there could be no trade, there could be no economic cooperation because of the political situation. Uh, so they were indivisible, politics and economics. Um, and the Japanese government has gone to great lengths to prevent legitimization of Russian sovereignty uh, through various measures, paying off other governments when governments had done deals to go to fish in the, in the region, monitoring its own citizens to make sure that they don't visit taking a visa, uh, and, and we'll, we'll come into some of the other things that they've done. Also, during the Cold War, uh, Japan, also due to the Cold War, enjoyed the sympathy and often the support of the West so of European powers and of North, uh, United States. Um, but with the end of the Cold War, uh, the Japanese government saw an opportunity uh, in Russia's moment of crisis, in fact. Turn the tables. Uh, because Russia was, well, first the Soviet Union and then Russia were in desperate need for aid. Uh, and Japan tried to internationalize the dispute by refusing to join the, the aid package uh, until the islands were returned. And the Bush administration, so the first Bush, Bush senior, actually initially took this position that aid for, for the Soviets and then later for Russia was conditional on the Soviets and Russia returning the, the islands. Uh, and in 1992 at the Munich G7 summit, the dispute was actually mentioned in the, the G7 declaration uh, that normalization of the relationship would be based on principles of law and justice and so on. Uh, but Japan's obstructionist stance preventing this aid package uh, the other countries gradually lost, uh, lost patience. And uh, in the end, by 1993, the rest of the countries in the G7 forced Japan to contribute with the, to the aid package. And from then on, although previously uh, presidents and prime ministers uh, of Europe talked about the issue and made statements on the issue, basically from 93, the rest of the world kind of stopped caring. Um, so as I mentioned, Japan was paying off countries, so South Korea and Taiwan and other countries have done deals with Russia to fish in the waters, and Japan has paid off those countries to prevent them from, to get them to not fish, so to avoid other countries recognizing that Russia owns the territory, and that's again because of this moral absolutism. They just cannot allow anyone uh, to recognize this, obviously, this Japanese territory. Um, and throughout the 1990s, Japan did try and push the issue, take up, uh, advantage of, and seize the opportunity provided by this, the weak Russian state, um, so in 91 and in 93, uh, there was top-level summits, we heard, and the, the economic issue was never off the table. So Japan made the aid conditional on, on uh, returning the, the islands. Um, this is where I, I maybe Paul can, can say more about this afterwards. But um, my understanding, at least, is that so Russia failed to effectively administer the islands in the 1990s. Um, so in 94, there was a federal program for the social and economic development of the islands, but the money which was uh, stated never appeared, 
uh, and the political will also to, to develop the islands was, was just not there. Um, it's also my understanding that islanders were unemployed and in fact they were in a position where they didn't have the money or, or the transport infrastructure to leave, so they were effectively stranded on the island. Uh, there was uh, health crises, there was energy crises, and Japan stepped in to fill the gap. So it invited uh, the islanders to come to Japan uh, in a kind of soft power push, show them the wonders of Japanese consumer capitalism, and then they would petition Moscow to secede. Um, and it also, while it was doing this, it was providing basic humanitarian assistance. It was providing generators, it was providing fuel, it was providing medicine. Um, and this was not altruistic, obviously. There were, it was sometimes subtle and sometimes not so subtle, the pressure that was put on local officials to put pressure on Moscow. And they were told if they didn't put pressure on Moscow, perhaps the humanitarian aid would stop. Um, but this was during the period of time when Russia was weak and unstable. And as we heard, um, when Putin came along, uh, power centralized, the economy began to recover. A second uh, social and economic development program was, was put together um, in 2006, uh, and the money was found. Uh, we saw some of the developments, uh, hospitals, uh, infrastructure, uh, military infrastructure. Um, also, in, from 1996 to 1997, the, the then Japanese Prime Minister, Hashimoto, he basically brought this Seike Fukubund, so the indivisibility of politics and economics policy, to an end. Um, he allowed significant Japanese investment in Russia, uh, in the Far East. Throughout the 2000s, we heard a bit about the, the increasing in trade. So Toyota, Nissan, and, and Mitsubishi all opened up operations. Um, so when you see the figures, by 2012, uh, foreign direct investment from Japan to Russia was 770 million US dollars, which compared to 10 years before was only 27 million dollars. So it increased exponentially uh, during the 2000s. Um, and there was investment in oil and gas and Sakhalin. So with the Russian resurgence under Putin, combined with this decoupling of trade from the dispute, the leverage that Japan had in the early 90s was effectively finished by the early to mid 2000s. Um, and Japan, in terms of international instruments, economic instruments are its, its traditional form because of its pacifist constitution. Anyway, um, so to sum up uh, and to ask why it hasn't changed. Well, as I said, it, it, it appeared, at least to the Japanese, in the early 1990s that its policy would be successful. Uh, now it's kind of obvious to most international observers that the Four Islands will not be returned. I'm very curious, I have some questions for Paul about uh, the Eurasian geopolitical uh, idea. Um, but looking from the outside, it, as I say, it, it seems that Japan is, is not in a position to get the Four Islands back. Uh, but one of the reasons why it doesn't change is there's just a lack of incentive for Japan to change its policy. So at the state level, huge amounts of money and effort were invested in the framing of the dispute, as I said, the Northern Territories Day in the textbooks, cabinet brief, um, and all the effort that was expended in the 1990s. Uh, so the absolute nature of this framing has prevented any kind of flexibility, and we heard a bit about Suzuki Munio, um, 
there was a purge of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, Russian desk in the early 2000s because there was these uh, diplomats who were advocating that Japan soften its position, essentially. Um, some of them ended up in jail. Uh, some of them ended up in Europe. Um, so the point is that it's career suicide to change, to advocate for an alternative policy. So there's not much in it for a politician to come uh, advocate for, for a softening. We also heard a little bit about geopolitics. So the geopolitical incentives for resolving the dispute and signing the peace treaty are also low. The US remains Japan's ally. Uh, Russia is on the other side. We heard about the Abe-Putin meetings from 2012, 2014, but once um, Ukraine happened, uh, Japan, obviously Abe tried to, to stay a bit closer to Russia than the rest of the Western Bloc, but nonetheless, his, his uh, hand was forced and they didn't meet, actually, after meeting about 10 times in two years. And there was another, I think, a year and a half where there was no meetings, precisely because of uh, the fact that Japan is on one side and Russia is on the other. Um, so now we hear the talk again in the newspapers. Abe wants to solve the issue. Uh, I agree very much with Paul. It, it's, it seems unlikely. Um, I mentioned also, sorry, the, the political, the public opinion uh, is not very pro-Russia, is not well-liked in Japan. And um, there's no incentive really for business to lobby either. So economic actors, there's as much investment in Russia as there is likely to be. Uh, and with the delinking of, of trade and politics, uh, actors are free to, to invest to the extent that they can with the US sanctions, of course. But... Um, so thinking about possibilities for change, for, for Japan, policy change in Japan, well, it is true that young people don't care very much. All the polls show that people under 40 are not so interested in the dispute. It's not a pressing matter for them. Um, generational change in the movement of former residents also, time has passed, many of the former residents are passing on. Um, and their descendants are still active members, but their attitudes are also... Uh, changing. So there are people who live in Nemuro, the town just across the, the, uh, the water there, are beginning to think, well, maybe Japan should change its policy. Maybe we should give up this four-island position. And then if this happens, at least we can have some economic activity, we can have trade, we can have exchanges, we can have tourism. Uh, so locally, although they were once the staunchest advocates of the, the, the more hardline policy, there are indications that they're changing their position. Um, and then there's all these talk of joint development. Uh, but the problem with joint development is that somebody has to have ultimate sovereignty. And uh, that's, that happened in the, the Senkaku-Diaoyu dispute. They had a joint development idea in 2008, and it fell apart because ultimately uh, there was disagreements on who technically was the sovereign state under which the joint development was taking place. Um, so anyway, that's, that's a very brief overview of the Japanese position. Um, Predictions are a very dangerous business. Um, but people seem to get away with it and get away with being wrong. So I th will just say that um, I can well imagine coming here in 10 years' time, uh, delivering a very similar talk uh, and not having to revise very much. So, uh, yeah, so thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, 
Paul O'Shea for that excellent presentation as well. And uh, it's certainly true that uh, this issue is not the main concern for many Japanese people and many young Japanese people. But uh, some people in Japan care about this issue and some people care a lot about this issue. If you go to the embassy of Sweden in Tokyo, which is located not far from the embassy of Russia in Tokyo, from time to time you can hear some noise in the distance. And that noise is from uh, Japanese ultra-nationalists going in their black vans with loudspeakers on the roof to the Russian embassy to protest. Um, Russia's stance on this issue and occupation of the islands from, from their perspective. Um, and before uh, we leave the word to the audience for q and I just want to retell uh, a story that Paul O'Shea told me uh, a couple of years back. Um, so uh, I'm paraphrasing, so if I tell uh, something in an incorrect way, you will have to correct me. But uh, when you defended your um, PhD uh, dissertation, uh, at Sheffield University, uh, a Japanese professor was was flying in to uh, uh, criticize and discuss uh, the dissertation. And Paul's dissertation was about uh, this dispute, but it was also about Japan's dispute with China over the Senkaku, Diaoyu Islands, and uh, the Republic of Korea over the Takeshima, Dokto Islands. Uh, and when the Japanese professor uh, uh, landed and, and went to Sheffield to discuss uh, the dissertation, he was he told Paul that oh I, I had such a, I had such an awful flight because uh, I was reading your dissertation on the flight and when I realized how badly we've been handling these issues, I, I felt sick and you know I I had a, the worst flight of my life. So so this is an, an emotional uh, issue for for some Japanese to date. I'm sure we have a lot of questions from the audience. Uh, when you get the microphone, because we do have a microphone, the room is not that big, but we will uh, record uh, this uh, talk so you can share it with your friends and family. So please then wait for the microphone and introduce yourself and please pose a short question. We have uh, the gentleman here first. Well, thank you very much. Is it on? You hear me? Uh, thank you very much. It was a very interesting exposition. And uh, I, I um, what uh, Paul Shea said at the end that things might not be much changed in ten years. Well, I know, having looked at this ten years back and twenty years back, things haven't changed very much. But there is one thing, one aspect which I was very surprised no one mentioned at all, and that the, although the word geopolitical was appeared a couple of times. The, the, the geopolitical importance, if you're interested in, in uh, nuclear strategy, etc., is also a factor here. The Sea of Otpolsk, if the Kuriles, Kuriles belong entirely to the Soviet Union, or Russia, excuse me, I'm thinking, I am not moderate in my thinking. <laughs> if the Koreas are all in the hands of the Russians, the Sea of Otox is an inland sea. If Itoro and if Itoro and Irup are belong to different countries, then the passage between those two islands are international waters, international passage. That means that the Sea of Otox, which is known, I think, to strategists, 
is a place where the Soviets can have nuclear submarines, where no one can get at them, and they operate quite freely. If, this, if that strait is, becomes an international strait, then U.S. hunter-killer submarines can also get into the Sea of Otox, and that's an important factor. They, the Americans fly over the, over the sea, and they often are disturbed when they do it. So this strategic aspect, I wonder if either of the speakers would like to address at all. Thank you, uh, Orian Banner. I used to be ambassador of Sweden to, to, uh, to uh, the Soviet Union and Russia during this period. And I talked to Kozurev the very day when we made the statement, actually, because we were recognized as the new state of Russia. But my question refers precisely to those two periods you mentioned, 91 and 2000. And particularly in 91, of course, uh, Russia, as was already mentioned, was in a dramatic economic squeeze. Uh, uh, as well as 2000, but particularly in 91. Uh, you mentioned that Japan only wanted to use the stick, that is to say, only wanted to withhold aid that was being discussed in the Western world. Uh, my question refers to the possibility of discussions within Japan or the impossibility of such discussions of actually using the carrot. Uh, that is to say, the possibility of uh, using uh, money, which of course would be available to Japan, uh, to really help Russia during that period, uh, which with Kozirib, with Yeltsin, with Borbulis that you mentioned, uh, would certainly have possibly made a difference and could also be sold to the Russian population because you might not, uh, you didn't mention that, but I mean, Russia at the time was not particularly preoccupied with relations with Japan. It was preoccupied with all sorts of internal problems, with the withdrawal of enormous number of troops from the West, etc., etc. So it could have been a possibility. Well, it was a possibility, of course. Thank you. Thank you both for your, your questions. Um, Maybe on the second one, Paul, is, is maybe a little bit more insight. Uh, on the first one, yeah, I've certainly come across that uh, argument uh, in, the, in the past, and um, but but maybe I mean, again, I mean, you should ask the colleagues next door in the, the military institutes because I'm not, uh, uh, you know, I don't have much you know, background in defence studies or or military capabilities. But it certainly was a big thing in the Soviet Union. This bastion strategy that you had, uh, you know, a, a close sea was very important for hiding nuclear weapons. But as far as I understand, we've got a new technologies, and uh, that became less less of an issue. That the, it's uh, the, 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 this is became sort of a, a strategy that wasn't as relevant anymore. But again, I'm not with kind of changes in in, in, in nuclear weapons and uh, and submarine uh, uh, capabilities. That this was less of an issue, and certainly the Russian uh, base in Petropavlovsk is is on the other side, uh, looking out. Um, I, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm it, it, from what I've read. This became it was a very important issue in the Soviet Union that the, that the sealed sea uh, had real strategic uh, significance, but less so now. Where, the, where there might be some kind of geopolitical reconfigurations in the in that that sense, the significance of territories, if things like Arctic sea routes open up and maybe ownership of, of certain territories and uh, uh, access to the sea may may have some uh, importance there. Um, but but as far as I, it wasn't the issue that it was in the in the Soviet period. And, and I think it's a fascinating question about the, the potential and, and possibility of Japan 
to, to have kind of had quite a dramatic gesture. Um, I don't know particularly about debates within Japan on this. Uh, maybe maybe Paul does. I know that they were Japan was criticised by the sort of the G7 at the time for you know come on where's the money and they were trying to link it to to this that there was there was it there never was any dramatic gesture. Decisions not often Japan is not famous for making decisions quickly and it needed to be a quick decision. You know this was a this was a a moment. Um, where I think, I guess, Russia was incredibly preoccupied with, with all kinds of issues. It wasn't the most important, but it was a, you know, the Russian Far East suffered more than any, one than any other region almost. You know, those, those subsidies that subsidized transport, it was quite catastrophic for people's lives there, not just on the islands themselves, and, and Paul mentioned that, which is very true, that that really affected people's mentality there and their, and their loyalties. Um, you know, but the Russian Far East was, you know, desperately needed this kind of investment, and, and maybe something dramatic from Japan could have, could have changed it. And I think I'll hand over to Paul there to... Thanks. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I, I just very briefly um, say that uh, I think also it's interesting that the, the two islands, so the two islands versus four islands solution, that the two island solution wouldn't cause a problem to this idea of the Sea of Akats, right? Because they run parallel. So Shikotan and Habamai run parallel to the two larger islands. So the two island deal could be done without problematizing the, the strategic issue. Uh, and as for the debate in Japan, I honestly, I, I'm not don't can't I don't want to say anything because I don't want to say something that I'm not sure about. Uh, I know that the the idea of large scale aid was on the table in the in ninety one and ninety three uh, bilateral aid, uh, but it was used uh, as a negotiation tactic. So I think I don't think there was any suggestion that Russia. I mean, the policy of uh, using economic leverage was in place until the late 90s, and I think it was the main policy. So I think that the idea of giving Russia aid without getting something in return was probably not so so widespread. That's as much as I would. Your analysis was that they used the, cat, the stick. I mean, the st the, my idea or the possibility of a carrot, that is to say, linking the two issues, but uh, still giving a bilateral sort of uh, real uh, possibility of, of having a much larger and, and better bilateral relationship. But uh, obviously, that was not uh, really thought, thought through. Thank you, Yvonne Svedin, Stockholm Resilience Center, Stockholm University. Um, I would like to linger on the danger issue that came up, especially from the Japanese side, uh, and uh, put again uh, the geopolitics into the picture. I guess that we are not talking about a sort of emergent flip-flop point with the trigger from this uh, type of conflict, but the guess would be that it would come in a broader tension field of the other other types of islands and uh, within a sort of a far eastern uh, type of combat uh, triggered by other means or what is meant by that it's dangerous just lingering on by decades and unhappy feeling by the japanese 
Uh, hello, thank you very much for the interesting presentations. My name is Artem Halushko. I'm from the Central European University, Budapest, Hungary. And I have a question related to various strategies used by the parties in this dispute. Uh, so the late uh, Russian opposition politician uh, Boris Nemtsov, who was uh, then in the 90s the member of the Russian government, has once told an interesting story about the dispute discussed here. He uh, said that uh, Boris Yeltsin, who was then the president of the Russian Federation, invited him to discuss the issue with the Japanese counterparts. And then in front of the cameras, in front of foreign journalists, Boris Yeltsin proposed uh, to Boris Nemtsov to find a solution of the dispute overnight. And of course, Boris Nemtsov was shocked. Uh, he rightly thought that it would be impossible to find a solution of such a complex issue overnight. But then his colleagues uh, calmed him down and they told him, don't worry, you need to find a solution which would be unacceptable to the Japanese part, <laughs> to the Japanese counterparts. And that's exactly what they did. The next day they proposed a solution which was re rejected by the Japanese side. So my question is, um, is this one of the strategies used by the Russian uh, government to propose solutions that would be unacceptable to the Japanese side? And if this is the case, what can Japan actually do in this situation? Is there anything that Japan can do to counteract this strategy? Thank you. Thank, thank you for, for both questions. On, on, on this idea of, uh, I'm not sure I, I, I got it exactly, but on this danger of this being a sort of a trigger for a, a broader a conflict, or, or what's, the, what's the dangers of just leaving it alone and, and there, there being a, a territorial dispute to linger on and maybe nothing will happen, it hasn't happened so far. I suppose, I, I mean, I, on the one hand, I don't know, but then I would say, maybe if you compare it with other territorial disputes that linger on, you leave it for the next generation, they can come out of nowhere. Um, you know, I think of some of the, the disputes with Japan and, uh, and China, which have really had a, they didn't have any resonance uh, sort of 20 years ago, and then they become very, very significant. Also, if you think of the, the, the Falklands Malvinas dispute, which was almost about to be sort of resolved, there was, there was some flexibility, it seemed, uh, you know, and until the conflict, there was debate and discussion, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, you have a, you know, a, a hot war. Um, it becomes a very dangerous uh, issue. And, and even even when the population are long dead who used to live there, and that's why I think that these these kind of territorial, uh, you know, the symbolism and the imaginary has, uh, uh, you know, has 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 quite an implications, and I think unresolved. Uh, they, they they can have dangers. Um, I, I you know in this case I'm I don't, I don't see it as imminently danger, but it's certainly it, until it's resolved there is question marks about that. And I think certainly there was with Putin. I think that was one of his. You know, uh, with China, he wanted to get these these issues solved and out of the way as soon as possible in 2004, and agreeing on 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 a, a territorial concession there that um, you know was maybe an, an optimum time for Russia to to agree on it at that moment, as China has since uh, you know uh, its economy and military has strengthened and strengthened. So it, yeah, it's a question mark, and, and I don't know, but I think unresolved, they, they they can come back to haunt us even when the residents who live there are long, are long dead. Uh, yeah, Nem Nemtsov is a, an interesting character, and I you know I think that's probably that is partly a negotiating strategy that um you know the, you know that, that at least there's apparent flexibility but they, they know it won't be uh, accepted but I, I think there's also I, do, I still think behind that i don't think russia does not want to solve the problem i think there has been a, a genuine attempt 
to 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 resolve this. And and Nemtsov, even just before he uh, you know was was assassinated, uh, he was talking about Russia. It was after this. I think it was around the time of this gas deal. He was talking about Russia falling into the kind of you know the hands of the Chinese communists and things like this. That he was really you know kind of worried about that. That that that, that this was not the vision he ever saw Russia going in in the early 1990s when he was kind of you know, surging to the West. Uh, you know neoliberal models, and then you know he sort of talked about you know you know Russia being in the in the hands of China. So I think there's uh, I don't think it was entirely disingenuous. I wouldn't I would accept that there is some element of that in any negotiations. You 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 push too far and then and then see where you get. Um, maybe Paul can say you know how far Japan came towards them or not. Um, well, actually, I was going to say I have nothing more to add, but <laughs> no no no. Uh, no, I mean, yeah. I, actually, I wanted to ask a, a question to you um, that I, I had from earlier on. Um, so, you were talking about this pragmatic patriotism and the, um, is it Dugan? Dugan? Yeah, one of them. Who manages to be hawkish on Ukraine, but somehow then advocates a sort of more pragmatic policy in East Asia. So I wonder, is it the case that, like, in Russia's case, that it, it would require somebody who has extremely high nationalist credentials to to offer some kind of a deal? I wonder if you could say something. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point. I think that was something that always undermined uh, Yeltsin and is often undermined in, in, in territorial conflicts, whether it's in... Uh, uh, in Northern Ireland, for example, you know, it was the the Hawks, the Ian Paisleys of the world, who, who who came to an agreement on this. It was unimaginable. You know, it was them who the communities kind of trusted, and maybe in a way, you know, there's some trust put in on this issue. And even you know, you know, long before that, he was a more stable, uh, a reliable leader than Yeltsin ever was. But I think I think there is something for the you know the strong men in a way, uh, you know, making these uh, these gestures, which are impossible. You know, you think of uh, of Barak in the Palestine Palestine. Uh, 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 Israel, and then it was it was Sharon who you know, at least you know, made some gestures, but I don't know. Maybe I, I think that's a that is very context dependent. It's very you know there's lots of different uh, uh, issues there. So I would say, but I don't think it this kind of this. I think that that is a that is I think it's sort of almost a dialectic strategy of uh, of Putin that there's always this terrain to return to a much more kind of assertive uh, where territory you know has a, a much stronger emphasis on, on control and, and not one more inch of territory. To then a, a grander gesture becomes more possible, but I don't know how long you can maintain that that dualism, and maybe the, maybe the, after uh, twenty fourteen that it, it became harder to do. Do we have any additional questions? Thank you, uh, Paul. Um, uh, one of the strengths of your work that I'm familiar with is it how you link issues uh, like the Creole Islands, which you've, we've talked about today in its various dimensions, to other issues, actually, in Russian uh, politics and Russian society. Um, I'd like you to say, and one thing, and you mentioned uh, this, but you didn't go into it, and it seems to me it must be important, but I don't understand it, so I'd like you to say a little bit more about it, because I have a feeling it can go in various directions. And that is how the Creole uh, <coughs> Island situation uh, fits into this larger or into this uh, separate uh, this turn to Asia, which you mentioned, and um, you know it's it's not immediately clear how it fits in Dugan, uh, but this was years ago, and one I don't know how contemporary this is. I suspect it's no longer contemporary, but it was very suspicious of China, and so flagged the value of the 
of, of achieving a settlement with the islands that could have in terms of, of establishing a, a, a link, a sort of a link with Japan to, to sort of position, to continue to position Russia favorably toward China. Of course, that's changed completely now, and Dugan has changed, as I understand it, has changed completely about that. So where does the Kuril Islands, can you just say a few words about how that fits into this larger uh, turn to Asia, to turn and, and um, uh, this, this new uh, Russian synergy with uh, China? Thanks, Mark. It's a, quite a challenging uh, uh, question, uh, in a way. Um, Certainly, the because and I think it's, it's, it shows. It, I think it reveals some of the, the paradoxes in this this turn, some of the inconsistencies and, and some of the contradictions of this of this turn to Asia. I, I, I mean, I mentioned Dugan, but I don't want to become obsessed with that's you know his ideas and then they resonate. You know, because that's, that's clearly not the case. And I mean, even in you know, the interview was before anything happened in, in in Crimea, and Dugan said he didn't return to this issue because it wasn't popular. You know, he's also although he has very kind of. A, uh, eccentric ideas and, and, and philosophical ideas. He also wants to have some mainstream appeal, and I think he even talked about Kaliningrad and uh, you know going back to Königsberg and there would be some. You know, he has this kind of axis of Iran and uh, you know fantasies, geopolitical fantasies. But as we know, they're, they're very they can become quite powerful uh, at certain moments. Um, and so he admitted he said, "Well, I don't really talk about this anymore because." But if it, you know if there, if something changed, if people in Japan came to sort of power who would talk about it, then then I would. But what, what I found fascinating in doing the research is, is also, and I mentioned him in the talk, was people like Dmitry uh, Trenin, you know, a much more a kind of, you know, Russia needs partners with, 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 with the European Union, you know, it needs economic developments, but it also needs to develop its partnerships, economic partnerships, and to develop territories with, with the Far East, and not just China, not exclusively China, but uh, Japan in particular, it has the technologies and the, the money uh, to invest there. And, and even more recently, I can't remember when he's, his lady's pronouncing what on it, but he's written two, bo two booklets uh, um, on the uh, Japan-Russia relations. And in both of them, the earlier one, which I think around 2004, suggesting 1956, that would be a, a good idea. But his next one, which uh, like 2012, around this time, I think before Crimea, he was suggesting, you know, even going further, that we, you know, going, it's a two plus two. So, and that was part of that, that, uh, that urgency and that pivot and that, uh, and that shift. But then if you look on the ground, and certainly there was, there was talk of this, Putin talked about uh, in, in 2012, he used Japanese terminology about a, a judo fight. He said, like, he said we should sit down, the foreign ministers like to uh, judoka, someone should shout hajime, and then we'll have a hikiwake, which is a draw. So again, he didn't say, but this was this kind of overture, 2012, you know, obviously things, whether, you know, that's the kind of question, what, would the, do, will these overtures keep happening? And I, I don't know. But and that was definitely part of that 2012, that pivot, you know, all these, you know, aligning themselves. If China was, you know, that deal sorted, can we do the same with Japan? But it, it, on the islands, it just hasn't played out. There was, we, I discussed at the end of my paper some of the, uh, you know, the challenges of that. And at the same time as this rhetoric about investment and development of the Far East, Russia is, is, is also investing on these islands, infrastructurally, military upgrading weapons. Uh, and how does that fit into a, a, a narrative of, of territorial concession? So I, I think it reveals a lot of these kind of contradictions and tensions about you know, space, geopolitics, and identity divisions in the Russian Far East. And it's, it's a kind of a schizophrenic relationship with the islands, in a way. Thank you, Paul. Um, I, I would then like to, to ask a final couple of questions to Paul O'Shea uh, about um, the Japanese uh, side here. Um, so we've been talking now also about the geostrategical uh, importance, uh, possibly, of these islands to, to uh, Russia, and before that, the Soviet Union. And in, in Japan, 
this issue is clearly uh, first and foremost a symbolic issue, it seems to me. It's about honor, it's seen as a, an affront, and it's about uh, justice, right? Russia should do the right thing here. Uh, I uh, think you can also imagine linkages to Japan's other territorial disputes. If, if Japan is willing to compromise here, how will that be uh, uh, received by, by uh, the Chinese, but also about, uh, by the Koreans? But uh, in, in addition to that, do these islands have any special importance to Japan? Do, do, do the Japanese interested in this issue see a lot of economic potential here? Or, or do they see any military strategic potential, or is it primarily a, a symbolic issue? That's my first question. And the second one I would like to ask about uh, Prime Minister Abe Shinzo uh, and his interest in solving this issue. And he's been spending some political capital over uh, the years, and he's been spending uh, time and resources, you know, uh, devoted to trying to find a solution for this issue. And I think it seems like both of you agree that this doesn't have a lot of uh, 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 real uh, potential. So, so, so what, what's Abe's endgame here? Is he seeing something that you don't, or is it maybe some other rationale rather than trying to find a solution that is behind his, um, uh, his interest in this issue? They're very good questions, Bjorn. Uh, thank you. Um, I agree with you entirely on the question of the symbolic value. It, it is, uh, my understanding is that it is primarily a symbolic issue. Uh, in terms of what compromise would mean for the other disputes, I think that this dispute is seen differently than the other two. So the Dokdo Takashima and the, the Senkaku Diyayu, uninhabited islands, the, the critical date, the moment that the dispute crystallizes comes from Japan's um, imperial expansion uh, and from war. And so we talked about the Cairo Declaration, the Potsdam Declaration, that Japan had to give up the territories which it took through violence and greed was the terminology. And Japan has always differentiated this one because it was through peaceful treaty and it had always been Japanese, again, forgetting about the people who actually used to live there. So those, the other two disputes, I think, are, are seen as fundamentally different. And there might be linkages between those two. So being seen to compromise on one might see, affect your the legitimacy or your, your, your stance on the other. I think the Northern Territories or the Southern Koreas, it's, a, it's, it's seen as different. And um, I think it's a real, I'd love to know the answer. Why? I don't, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I mean, obviously, you know, there's the geopolitical thing and the question of United States' engagement and, and commitment to the region and hedging against that and in a difficult position. I mean, you mentioned it yourself earlier with Korean nationalism, with conflict with China, that, you know, you don't have many friends, so you, you try and avoid making too many enemies. But um, I honestly don't know... I look at it and I think it's, it, this can only be it, I think. Keeping Russian relations in a, in, a, in a better place and maybe just the process of trying, which has been going on. I mean, Abe is investing a lot of political capital, but when you go back and look at different prime ministers, Mori was, was also big on it. I mean, he, he, he really wanted to push this and Hashimoto also came in saying, you know, we're going to, like many prime ministers have come in and said, we're going to transform relations. Uh, it, it's a recurring thing, and 
So I think maybe it, it's just that the process keeps relations uh, at least uh, a bit closer. That's my, my thought. So uh, thank you all for showing up uh, this afternoon to this uh, Stockholm seminar on Japan, number 79. Uh, please check your inbox for invitations to upcoming seminars here at Stockholm University, Stockholm School of Economics and the Swedish Defense University. And I also want to thank our partner in organizing this seminar at Södertörn uh, University. And I will ask both our terrific speakers to sign our Stockholm seminar on Japan guest book and please join me in giving them a big hand. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews. <laughs>